This is CliffCentral.com. Is this thing on? You're listening to The Bounce Show. It's live. Well, not this bit, but it's live on CliveCentral.com. Um, it's Cliff Central, Platt. <clears throat> Sorry, scrap that, delete it. CliffCentral.com. Welcome to it. You're listening to The Bounce Show with me, Ben Karpinski, right here on CliffCentral.com. If you're listening live, good morning. Hope you're having a great, what is it, Thursday? I always forget. These weeks, these days, they all fly past right now. All I know is that there is no Bok Rugby this Saturday, so it's difficult to structure my week accordingly. It was very good that we got to see the Springboks play at least better last time. They did lose. We'll get to that in a little bit. But first, we need to get straight into a golf interview. Now, you know, I'm a massive fan of listening to various podcasts, and there's so many great golfing podcasts out there, mostly from America, some really great guys who are so involved in the tour. They really are there in the front lines. And better than that, it's not just about being a journalist. It's about getting to great ways of packaging content and getting it out there and engaging with fans. And today, I'm chatting with Kyle Porter, who works through CBS, that is his sort of main um, claim to fame, I guess. But uh, he's a guy I've been following on Twitter. He's a guy that's featured a lot on my favorite podcast, which is the No Laying Up podcast. I think he's been the most celebrated of all the guests. Uh, he was recently on the 100th edition of the No Laying Up podcast. So I chat to Kyle about how he got into media, uh, the golfing media, and basically a few other things in his day-to-day life, and just some wrap-up thoughts from the 2017 season, which has been really fantastic. You know, I love golf so much. And this year has delivered so many, so many massive highlights to me. So up next, it's Kyle Porter. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Ben. I appreciate you having me on. Now, Kyle, your your Twitter profile in particular is something that I really, really enjoy. Um, you're an accomplished podcaster, an accomplished golf writer. Uh, how did it all start? I mean, were you always like a massive golfing fan who then just wanted to get into media, or did it kind of go the other way around? <laughs> Uh, it's a good question. You know, I, I, uh, I actually went to college and got, uh, an MBA. I got a, I got a graduate degree, uh, in college, uh, went to work for an insurance company right after that. And I was kind of bored with it. I, I just, I didn't love my job. Uh, so I started, uh, an Oklahoma State, uh, football and basketball blog. So I covered, uh, college football and college basketball just kind of on my own from, I live in Dallas and I, so I wasn't even living in Oklahoma, but, Started the blog. It did well. I met some of the right people. I met uh, Jonathan Wall, who covers uh, equipment for PGATour.com, and a couple other people, and and I kind of just wanted to get into the industry. I had always followed golf kind of tangentially, but never or not even close to as as much as I do now. So uh, it was it was kind of a, a backwards way of falling into it, but uh, I've certainly enjoyed it and, and, and hopefully taken advantage of it since I've gotten the job. Now, you're currently with CBS, so you're the chief golf writer there. How close are you to the kind of events, and what's your normal sort of work spec like? I mean, are there certain events that you have to cover physically at the course every year, or do you do most things just wherever you are in the country? Yeah, that's a good question. I I travel to pro- – I think last year or this last season I did about six events. So I went to the uh, Arnold Palmer. I went to the Players' Championship. I went to the Masters. I went to the U.S. Open and I went to the PGA Championship, and then I'll cover the events that are here locally in Dallas, like the Byron Nelson mm-hmm. and uh, the Colonial over in Fort Worth, um, Dina DeLuca, whatever we're calling it these days. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I I normally just go to the bigger ones, um, and and then obviously the smaller ones if they're if they're close by. But we just you know. The way CBS is structured, we just don't have the budget for me to uh, be on the road. Thankfully, we don't have the budget for me to be on the road every day, every week of the season, because that would be, uh, that's tough. That's a tough life to be out there 30, 35 weeks a year. And I really respect the people that, that are able to do that. Well, exactly. It really is a hard, it's a hard run because travel, as much as it feels glamorous in the beginning, it becomes a real pain in the ass. Now, do you have like a brief that goes into this? So, you know, will you be looking to interview certain players? Is there a kind of a certain story you're looking to get out of it? Or is it pretty much you get there and you just see how it goes from there? Because I'm really the only person that we have for golf right now, it's kind of just get there and see how it goes. You know, I, I think that. I think that when you're chasing specific things, um, you have the luxury. A lot, a lot of 
organizations have the luxury of like having another person to, to cover for what they need to get done. For us, it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of doing, you know, I do have some help for the, for the major championships, but for the most part, it's, um, there, there's a lot of freedom to it. And I really like that. I've really appreciated that because, you know, one day I might follow, uh, Bubba Watson at the masters and write about that. And he's not, anywhere near the top of the leaderboard, but that's what I felt like doing. And so I was able to do it and then we'll write about the leaders later on. So it's, it's been fun to kind of, um, kind of make my own way in terms of just figuring out what I want to write, uh, every day and, and, uh, and each week that I go to these events. That really is cool. And as far as your, your structured work, uh, there's articles you write, but like, do you dedicate a lot of that time for your personal Twitter and that kind of stuff as well? Or is it you just find you're working so hard, whatever happens on your workload happens? I've been trying to stay off Twitter more. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I find it to be a time suck on my actual work. You know, we don't, nobody makes money off of Twitter, you know, uh, directly. I think that Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, Instagram, they can lead to, um, yeah, it's like a profile great, Yeah. Yeah. To great jobs. But a lot of, a lot of Twitter is for me, it's either, uh, um, like when I'm watching an event live and I just fire off a thought or whatever. And some of it is like spillover for research. I do like, let's say I'm researching something on, um, Justin Thomas's short game mm-hmm. and I'll find an interesting stat or I'll find an interesting quote from somebody about it. And then I'll just kind of throw that on Twitter. So it's, it's, it, it's fun because it's, um, it, it's sort of, I, I wouldn't call it behind the scenes, but it's a little bit of just like, uh, around the edges of, of kind of the actual work that I'm doing. And, and, and hopefully I, th- I think people generally like it. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you sent, you, you write a tweet and then you look at it and go, mm, maybe I'm going to delete that one. Does that ever happen? Oh yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> I, I was talking to, I was actually talking to, to Chris Solomon of, of No Laying Up about this, uh, a couple of months ago. And I was like, man, I just, I feel like I got, I, I just have nothing to say on Twitter. Like nothing's funny, nothing's good, whatever. And he's like, you gotta, he's like, you gotta be patient. You gotta pick your spots. You can't force it. You know, that, that's the thing is not forcing it because, and I, I used to do this earlier in my career, but I would just, I would say everything. I would just fire off everything. Yeah. And it's like, you, you kind of need to be a self curator, you know, a self editor, if you will. Um, and, and only try to put the good stuff out there, but not everything's a hit. Like, you know, some stuff I think is funny and nobody else does, which is fine. Like, that's just kind of how it goes. But yeah, I have fun with it. And I think it's helped me be a better writer just in terms of being more, economical and efficient with my words and 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 really self-editing like seeing what actually matters what is actually good and and what is not yeah it's a really good point something that i've learned because i used to work in advertising i wanted to get into sports and i knew i could write but i wasn't sure about what would work what you throw out there and it's almost like in the beginning you can use twitter as a bit of a sounding board and you develop your followers you develop people who like what you got to say but then you really work out like what you should and shouldn't say and also with you, you yeah. know, you've, you're employed by, you've got a mainstream employer as well, which you've got to look out for those interests as well. Is that something that does play on your mind as, as you now are maturing in your role as a golf uh, writer? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I, I've never been one to, I, I, I don't really walk the, the edge of the cliff, uh, as much as some. I, I'm, I'm more conservative, just, in my personal life and, and, and by extension, uh, I think in my professional life as well. So I've never thought about it a ton, but you know, I, I think that I think more about, uh, players and agents and caddies, like those, those people that follow you that you're like, is this like, if, if, if you put something out there that's, that's funny, that is pretty lighthearted, mm-hmm. even if it's making fun of somebody, Almost everybody's going to accept that well, but if it, it it's when it gets a little bit edgier, a little bit darker, a little bit less funny that you're like, ah, these are real people that you're like affecting their lives, you know? And yeah. so that, that's the stuff that I've, that I've tried, uh, for the most part to, to kind of stay away from. Well, that's, it's something that I'd, it's definitely, you can, you can get the, the guys who are the also rands and the noisemakers to the actual quality. Like people do say that Twitter has become a bit of a cesspool of like just all kinds of horrible insights and opinions, but it is definitely something, you, you know, the cream does rise to crop, so to speak. Like speaking of which, 
Um, I first heard of you on the No Laying Up podcast. Like I've interviewed Chris on the show here. Um, mm-hmm. I actually met him in, in South Africa last year. Such an amazing guy with great insights and great humor. When you two come together on a podcast, it sounds like you guys have known each other forever and ever. You always seem <laughs> to have, you have this great understanding where the humor comes naturally because you know your subject matter so well. Do you guys prep much, you know, because obviously you're a guest, you know, you're not part of the No Laying Up crew, you're just a much loved guest as the 100th episode right. recently right. proved. Do you guys do much prep right. together or is it very much like, okay, today we're talking President's Cup um, and we'll see where it goes? Yeah, uh, I, I don't really do any prep, um, <laughs> which people can probably tell, but uh, Chris, Chris does a good job of writing down notes and he, I think... I think one of the more underrated things about him that people don't really realize is how good at he he is, um, and and he's good at this in real life as well. But on the podcast of just directing a conversation and and leading you to where he wants to get you, not not to an answer that he wants you to say, but to a thing that he wants you to to discuss. Yeah. Because you you it, I mean, as you know, having a podcast, like it's it's difficult to get people to places where they say interesting things especially media people or well especially with like athletes and and golfers and um that that that's tough but he's he's so good at it to, to get people to places where they're willing to say interesting things and i think he does a great job of that and i'm kind of just along for the ride he'll text me a couple of topics that we're hitting and i'll make sure that i've got you know like one or two interesting notes or points or stats or whatever but there's not a there's not a ton of of prep work in there and um you know we've still like we've probably hung out or seen each other in real life i don't know five times or six times ever mm-hmm. um which is crazy because i you know we talk every day and and he's he's become a good friend um but th- there's an example of of twitter being used for good like we met because of twitter and now we have a, a really cool relationship because of it as well yeah, it really is so great. I know from, like, I cover a variety of sports. I would love to just cover golf, but the market's not quite big enough here in this country. But it is, you, you develop such a great understanding of sport through people who see it similar to you do. Now, yeah. the, the, the year of golf, obviously it was again dominated by the Americans. Um, what you guys did in the majors was amazing. The young talent coming through and not just being young talent, but being the next level. Um, it started off with the Masters, of course, with the Majors. Sergio won that one. For me, that wasn't the most memorable of Masters. But for you, it was particularly incredible because you got to play the golf course the next day. Now, I, I, I did. I, I, I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard various stories around how this is made possible. But basically, there's a – just correct me if I'm wrong here. There's a bit of a media lottery. So if you're accredited media – names go down and there's a draw and uh, how many people get to like earn this privilege i i believe there was seven or six or seven groups of four so i I think it was 24 or 28 people i don't know how many people in total cover um the masters in a given year it's it's in the hundreds I, i don't i don't know how many hundred but um, the thing, the thing about it is once you win it, so like now that I, that I won it this year, I'm, I'm not even allowed to enter it for the next seven years. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm just, I'm disqualified for the next seven years, which is totally <laughs> fine. You don't, you don't, you don't want somebody out there playing it like four years in a row while somebody else has never played sure. it. I think that's a good, a good way to do it. Um, but it does sort of limit, uh, the field a little bit. Uh, so, so not everybody that's in attendance is eligible to be picked. And is it like, uh, you obviously people have asked you this about a thousand times, but is it everything that you wanted it to be? Was it as, as special, as incredible as that you thought it would be? It, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's surreal. It, it almost doesn't feel so like if you go out and play your local course or even a, a course in your area that you've never, um, that you've never played before that you're like, Oh, this place is nice. Like I, I like playing golf here. It's a very, um, you're out in nature. It's a very, uh, real experience. It's, it's very tangible. Like you touch the grass, like all this different stuff. And playing Augusta is, is almost the opposite of that. It's very, it's very surreal. Like it, it, it doesn't feel like it feels almost imaginative. Like it's just because you've seen it so many times and you know, all the, the places on the course and, and all these different things. And then you're there and you're like, is this, is this happening? Like, am I actually doing, am I dreaming about this or am I actually doing this? And so 
in that sense, it, it, it almost, it's, it, this is weird to say, but it almost takes away from it a little bit because it doesn't feel as real as, as a, just a normal round of golf, uh, would. But right. we had a great group and it was, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's one of the cooler experiences I've ever had. So what happens now? Like it, all the media guys that have played, do you guys have a special dinner at like the Hooters, like in, in weeks from now? <laughs> like a special equivalent of a champion's dinner? Well, I, <laughs> that's a great question. I, uh, well, you should start it if you haven't got it yet. <laughs> that, that's a great idea. I think we should have like a, uh, a, a members or a, yeah, members only like tournament the day after at some, at some local course there. But no, we, we usually play the Monday after at, a, at uh, this place called uh, Champions Retreat, uh, which is 20 miles from the course. And I was slated to play there, but then obviously you get picked and you're like, well, See you later, guys. I'm I'm gonna go play a different course today. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. That does sound so amazing. A friend of mine actually went there from because our, our our local uh, channel SuperSport they go there every year, and it was his first time and his very first time he got to play it. He said the only drawback was you play off the members' tees. So in your mind, you've got these amazing ideas of like hitting in a like a long iron to thirteen or hitting in a fairway wood to fifteen, but in reality, you're hitting like eight iron or something because you're playing off the men's tees yeah uh that, yeah that, it's very short it. yeah it's very very short it's, people have asked me like you know is it hard and the real answer is not it's not that hard i mean obviously like the the uh the greens are super fast because it's the day after the sunday of, yeah. of the masters and and the uh the, the chipping areas are, are tough but it's not a you can't really, you know, it's, it's hard to lose your ball there. Like you, you, you don't lose a lot of balls. You don't hit it in the water a ton. It's not a, it's not a difficult course. What makes it difficult is you on every shot thinking, wow, I'm never going to have, I'm never going to hit this shot again. And, and that, that gets in your head a little bit. It's, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to play well when you're, when you're thinking that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a, such a memorable and cool experience. I kind of felt like that at the 17th uh, St. Andrews in the old course when I was standing on the tee there. Yeah. I, I, I've never hit the ball so far right in my life. I hit the part of the hotel <laughs> that even the hotel people don't know that you can get hit there. And you, you feel kind of bad, but it's part of the experience, I guess. So just looking at the, yeah. year, at the year in golf, obviously Justin Thomas was the massive story, but he was the massive story from the start. It started off in Malaysia where he's playing this weekend, and it went all the way through. Um, so much has obviously been said about this guy. Uh, there's been the whole narrative about, you know, he was friends with Jordan Spieth from a young age and now they, their careers are aligned. I'm tired of that. I'm sure you're very tired of that. Is, um, looking forward to the next year. Obviously, you know, he's going to be a marked man. Everybody wants, wants to see how his game's going. Who do you reckon is going to start coming through? Because the last few years have taught us that the youngsters have obviously no fear. They're getting out there. They're winning early. They're winning a lot. Who are the sort of big names do you think we should look out for next year on the PGA Tour? Well, there I've got three Americans in my head, and and there's more certainly, but the the three guys that um, that I think could be I don't know about the next Justin Thomas. Justin Thomas is a pretty special talent. Yeah, uh, and it, you know it, was, it he, wasn't an overnight thing. He was good for quite a while. Right. That's the thing I think people don't totally understand is like. The, the narrative of him and Spieth, like him and Spieth were like equivalent growing up, sure. like as juniors, like they were, you know, you could argue one was a little better than the other or whatever, but they were kind of the same. And then people see it as like, oh, well, you know, Spieth's so much better and he got out there first. And it's like, well, maybe, but Tom is pretty good. You know, like he's, he has a chance to be really special, but the, the three Americans um, that I'm thinking of, uh, Ollie Schneider-Johns, uh, he's been on the tour, I think last year was his rookie year. Uh, he almost won the Wyndham. Really good player. Uh, he had a great amateur career. He was number one in, uh, amateur in the world for a while. I think he's going to be really good. Um, Peter he's, Uline. He's the guy uh, with no hat, right? No hat, yeah. The Robert Rock of, of the PGA Tour. <laughs> uh, Peter Uline is somebody who played the European Tour for a while um me and him both went to oklahoma state so i've got a an affinity for for his career but he's um i think he has a i think he has brooks kepka like potential you know obviously right. that's the comparison because kepka went over played europe came back won phoenix open won u.s open i think i think yuan could have that type of trajectory into his mid to late 20s uh, and then patrick cantlay you know cantlay somebody he made the tour championship only playing 13 events last year and Speed said he's he's top ten 
player in the world talent. Like he, he thinks he will be a top 10 player in the world someday. He's like 71st right now or something like that, but he's a star. He was a star in amateur golf, went to UCLA. Um, and I think he has a really good chance to, uh, to, to be a, in that, in that talked about group of 25, 26, 27 year olds, uh, over the next few years. Yeah. The reason I ask is because I've been having a debate with some friends here after watching the President's Cup. And for some strange reason, after one night of sitting around with a few beers, I took three bets. Um, I'm backing America for the Ryder Cup. My friends believe Europe will win it again. And I couldn't quite understand if I'm missing something here. So I went through the American team. I went through where they're going. And they were still adamant to put money down. So I, I think I'm going to make some money because I don't see this American team losing. My only question was that, say, for instance, that Charlie Hoffman's going to fall out. Maybe Chapel's season isn't that good. Are there two or three guys that could possibly come in to be part of this, what I believe will be an all-conquering team for the next sort of decade even? Yeah, it, I, I was talking about this with with, with uh, Solomon on No Way Up, but it, it, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with those kind of bottom three or four spots because yeah. what you – could do is fill them with uh, guys that have been at Ryder Cups before. You know, if Brant Snedeker has a good year, if if uh, Webb Simpson has a good year, like maybe they get filled with those guys. So, I mean, so somebody will make the team, so you're not going to be picking. You know, uh, uh, not everybody's a captain's pick. But um, do you fill them with guys that have been there before? Or do you fill them with guys who haven't been there, like a Patrick Cantlay, but who have all the talent in the world and and who? Um, you know, could could be superstars in the future. You look back and and it's kind of like, wow, uh, Justin Thomas wasn't on that Ryder Cup team last year. That seems that seems silly. Like, is is that going to happen in 2018 with a Cantlay, with a Uline, with somebody like that? I I don't know, but I I am I think that is kind of the underlying um, story of this U.S. team over the next year. Is who do they? Who do they fill the bottom of their roster with, and and is it is it veterans, guys that have been there, or is it uh, young stars that are that are maybe hungrier? Yeah, it's such an interesting mix because then you got the, you want the experience because it's going to be over in Europe. It's much more difficult. The guys have such limited time away from actual you know the continent of North America, obviously. So it's I'm I'm fascinated by it. It's like I I love Presidents Cup because the one time where I get to see players from my country take on this event, but it's always going to be second, third, fourth fiddle. The Ryder Cup's where it's at. That really is the thing. Now, um Carl, I know we haven't got too much time. Um I just want to get into the Presidents Cup with you quickly. People yeah. people are obviously saying that you know it's a bit of a one it's a one horse show this. It's just getting worse and worse and the fact that it was almost done before the singles this time around was like that just all the naysayers were just crowing about this. What do you reckon is like a sustainable step that this event could take to make it more competitive? I'll start you off. I've got two things. I think it should never be played in America. It should only be played in international <laughs> courses. And secondly, Gary Player has to be the international captain every single time. So those are my two suggestions. If that happens, I reckon it might be more level. What do you think about that? I think I think Gary Player should play. Well, I know. I think, I th- I think they should... <laughs> But Carl, you, you do realize he's extremely modest. That's why he won't play. Uh, I loved the idea. I think Brandel Chambly said it on Shane Bacon's podcast, but started off with singles matches. Um, it seems like the the international team is the the, the problem is, and and when you started off with um, with the team play. It's it's so difficult for somebody to overcome a Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas team, especially sure. when it's when it's uh, four ball, or excuse me, when it's when it's foursomes, when it's alternate shot. It's so difficult for somebody to overcome a, a Jordan Spieth and, and Patrick Reed team. And once that momentum gets going in one direction, um, it's tough to stop. Now I say that international team only lost by one point in 2015, so it's not like. Yes, the U.S. has won a lot, but it's not like they've won in the manner that they did this year a lot. You know, they, they've they've won a couple blowouts, but there's also been, you know, the, the Korea one was legitimately interesting until the very end. So I do like your idea of, of never playing it in the U.S. We see enough golf in the U.S. Uh, throughout the year. Take it wherever. Take it to India. Take it to China. Let's, let's see golf in some other parts of the world. Uh, I'm a proponent of a global tour, though, too, so I might not be the best person to ask. Um, and then, uh, oh, the other thing is, uh, fewer matches, the, the more match, like if you go out and play, 
a thousand matches between the U.S. and the international team, U.S. is going to win every time because they have sure. better players. Exactly. The only more, way, more depth, the only yeah. way, yeah, the only way to to kind of level that out is to to take it down to what if they only played twenty four matches? What if what if not everybody played singles? You know, some I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there, but I, I think that with fewer matches, it could get a lot more interesting and 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 probably a lot more competitive. It's so true because it's not going to be the Ryder Cup. It's never going to be a competitive Ryder Cup. If anything, it's an exhibition game played in the same clothing, so to speak. So I think they should definitely try these things out. Really should. Yeah. It's it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And it would make it more competitive. It's great. I'm all for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. And I think they should take a, a page out of the European Tour's playbook and just say, if anybody has an idea, we'll try it out on our tour. We don't care. <laughs> I, I I love that. I, I love the European tour is so keen to try different things, and it must be such an exciting yeah. tour to work for because you never know what's going to happen in, from season to season. It's, it's great. <laughs> I love it. Carl, thanks so much for your time today. I really love love chatting golf with you. Uh, perhaps next year we can pick it up something around a major. Um, it, like I said, I really enjoy your insights um, online, and it's one of those things. Like golf is a great sport to watch on TV, and it's even better when you got a great Twitter feed rolling in with what's going on there. Uh, where else could people find you online or find you around the tournaments and your, the work you do? Yeah, just on Twitter, it's at Kyle Porter CBS, and then I write most of the stuff that's on CBSSports.com uh, backslash golf. So most of the most of the articles and videos and stuff on there are mine um but yeah i I appreciate you having me ben this was a lot of fun and uh yeah hopefully we uh hopefully get to run into each other someday it'd be a lot of fun well it is my life dream and goal to go play on a full-on golf tour in america it's i've I've traveled a fair amount but i still haven't done that so it's on on the to-do list okay well we'll see you then (laughs) okay how about this within five years we make a four ball me you chris and bacon have a four ball wherever you guys obviously pick the golf courses That'll sound like so I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be the worst out of that foursome, but yeah, that, it would it would be a ton of fun. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carl. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Ben. Cool. Big thanks to Kyle. Really great chatting to him. If you want to follow him on Twitter, that Twitter handle is at Kyle Porter CBS. He is, of course, the golf writer for CBS Sports. So we need to get into the cricket because, well, there was a much-anticipated Global League T20. I think that's what it eventually ended up being called. Look, there was a lot of speculation about what was going to happen. There was eight teams. They were mostly owned by foreign people, mostly from either India, uh, the UAE, or Pakistan. And it was going to be this extravaganza where, well, see, I, I kind of had this feeling, and I'm not saying this now to try to sound all sage-like and like, you know, I told you so. But I almost believe, like, it's a bit of, there's a bit of a bubble around this whole T20 league. Obviously the IPL started. The Big Bash League got the thing going. England have dabbled with a little bit of T20 here and there. The T20 of course originated in England actually. They were the first people to really get the thing going. And you know, every country's got its own little thing. But the way T20 is going and the purpose of T20, if you're in the business of T20, is that you want to make it global. So if you look for example the Kolkata Knight Riders. They, of course, have the IPL team. That's their most successful, obviously, the big successful franchise. But then it became the Cape Town Knight Riders. So you see where I'm going with this. They would then want to get teams into different global leagues. And if there's enough global leagues, then T20 is a big annual thing. Now, if they get that right, the powers that be, they could then sell TV rights, not just for the IPL, not just for the Bangladesh Premier League or whatever it is. They can sell it for an entire season so that it incorporates things like the Global League T20, which was South Africa's version of that. So that was all big plans. And I've, I've heard so many different things from so many different sources. You know, a lot of people who I trust, a lot of people I, I take things from a pinch of salt with. Um, with this, it all sounded like things were kind of coming together. But then a few weeks ago, we kind of all realized that, hang on a second, what's happening with the broadcast deal? Where's the title sponsor? You know, we took it for granted that these things hadn't been done yet because these things don't work. Like we always hear about the massive money that, say, Pepsi puts into uh, the IPL. I think they renewed their contracts last season or I, I can't keep up, but it's billions and billions and billions and billions, as Donald Trump would say. So we never heard any of that talk. We all thought like, okay, cool. So these are the teams, uh, these are the players, these are the owners. And we kind of 
maybe they were just putting so much hype into all of that to make us realize, well, we'll kind of forget they haven't got the title stuff rolled in yet. So Supersport believed, which is obviously SA's major uh, broadcaster, they kind of believed that if, if cricket's taking place in South Africa, then they're going to be the ones who are going to be broadcasting it. Um, and then it was like, well, actually, guys, no, this is a global T20 league, so you're not guaranteed that you're going to be the broadcaster. So I think Supersport were taken by surprise. And again, I'm just picking up scraps all over the place because I don't think there is a definitive word of what's going on here. While this is happening, while there's no broadcaster, Harun Logat, who's running running the thing, running Cricket South Africa, who's obviously instrumental in getting this thing off the ground and making it a global success, he suddenly resigns out of nowhere. Again, there's speculation. Uh, people say that the relationship ran its course and there were some differences that couldn't be resolved between a Logat and the Cricket South Africa board. Again, we'll never really know the story to this, but the bottom line is he's gone. Here's a guy that was so instrumental to bring this into life. He's gone. So if you're a franchise owner and you put in however million dollars to make sure you have this right, you're kind of thinking, well, this is a bit shaky right now. So obviously they all put a brave face on. No, no, the league's going ahead. Everything's going great. We're getting closer to signing the deals, the broadcasting rights, all that kind of stuff. And then out of nowhere this week, well, actually, uh, it's been postponed. So... <laughs> Obviously, it's a massive shock for the players involved. I think a lot of these guys, I know some young South African guys, this will be like their first sort of big money contract that they've signed. Whether they spent the money or not, that's obviously another issue. But these are guys who are planning their, their lives around peak summer. So if there's no T20 league in SA this summer, we're looking at six weeks where there's nothing really going on. Remember the Ram Slam T20, which obviously was a great success. I think Ram as a sponsor need, need to be commended on what they did with this. But then the match fixing tainted it and, uh, well, let's just say it, it, it all ended, unfortunately. So that's not even in the picture, the, the local T20 league, because there wasn't even a sponsor. Remember they played the T20 league here in SA without a sponsor. It was basically Cricket South Africa presenting a T20 league. So I don't know, poison chalice. If, if South Africa are just outside of the bubble of making money out of T20, if the year is already too saturated with T20 that this time of year, there's no chance. Because remember, the big bash in Australia, which is only second to the IPL, really, if you look at the numbers and if you look at the success of what the league has become, this is happening at the same time. This is happening in the festive season. This is happening, of course, when people are looking at primetime summer entertainment. I know the Global League T20 are trying to make it so they don't quite conflict with that. So it's more of a November into early December thing. Either way, November 2017 will not see the start of the Global League T20. I'm hoping I'm getting this right. I should probably reference this kind of stuff if I'm going to talk about it. Let's just call it the GLT20. I think that's what it is. Well, it doesn't really matter because it's not happening. So they say it's being postponed until 2018, which is a nice way of just basically saying, look, we can't do it this year, but we'll do it next year. Yeah, I don't know. Right? If they can't get title sponsors, if there's been this much issue in getting this thing off the ground. Um, you know, there's other reports this week I read about the fact that Cricket South Africa are going to lose money on this thing for the first three years minimum because they've got to put a lot of cash into obviously setting this whole thing up. It's not just as easy as saying, well, let's go play cricket at that ground. A lot goes into these things and a lot goes into hosting these teams, developing infrastructure for people to buy into. And, uh, well, it's not going to happen this year. So you've got to feel for those players. And then obviously the more established players. These are guys who have made commitments to come out here. They haven't played, they haven't committed to other leagues or other times where they could be making money doing whatever else they're doing in their, in their professional careers. So it's a massive inconvenience to them too. It's just, just another bad story around South African sports, which is, you know, again, you don't want to be hypercritical, but it's not, it doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good that we, as South Africans, went for a place where we're very good at sports, we're very good at hosting things. We had we had our shit together, to put it really, really uh, bluntly. And this thing doesn't go away, so where's the confidence in other things that are going to come here? Where's the confidence in other new investors coming in and backing sports and making things more global? Because all of sport is going more global, whether you like it or not. I mean, right now, we've got the Cheetahs, the rugby team. They're playing in the Curry Cup in Bloemfontein against local teams, but they're also playing against Irish, Welsh, um, Italian teams, Scottish teams. 
uh, in the Pro 14. So we've got to become a lot more global. This is the whole thing. And these teething issues, or ugh, I don't know if we can still call them teething issues, 2017. But it is a little bit frustrating. And um, I think that's a kind of, I don't think we should speculate any more about that. Um, but this is this is the reality. There'll be no massive T20 league. And what makes it even worse is that India, of course, are only coming to SA at uh, starting their series in January. So December? Oh, yeah, we still got that Zimbabwe test match. Again, this is the highlight. This is now the highlight of a proud cricketing nation that through the December month, a four-day test, maybe a five-day test. Do you, do you even know how many days this test match is? This is how the plight gets worse. The pinnacle of the end of 2017 for South African cricket is a four-slash-five-day test versus Zimbabwe. I'm going to just let that one sink in for a second before we talk rugby. On to some rugby then. Well, it was, yeah, bittersweet. I guess people are saying about the whole way that the Springboks came so close to beating New Zealand only to lose by a point in the end. And there was just typical drama. So let's try not to get too upset. I know people on Twitter are saying, well, you lose by one point, you lose by 57. It's still a loss. But I think we've, we've got to see some context amongst all of this. And, you know, I've been saying in previous weeks that I'm tired of the box process being this process i just want it to be a team that's either going to win or lose or we can just carry on with it but i think we've got to look a little bit further and uh, to take the all blacks you know like there's always comments around these games even if we had won that match if the box had won that match on saturday people would have said yeah but it wasn't the first strength all black team and it was a bit of a dead rubber so there's two ways of looking at it all the time. You can try to be optimistic about this, which I believe we should be about sports in this country, or you can just have that sort of overarching neutral view, which often goes on towards the more of a pessimistic view. Now, this is somewhere where I become because, you know, this is my life. I talk about sport. I write about sport. I can't be a fanboy the whole time because if I am, then I miss out on a lot of stories. I think I miss out on like a lot of what's going on. So I try to keep it as down the line as I can. And that's just the one thing I really took out that was a big, big plus. That it was like, it was a classic All Blacks versus Springbok match. And we haven't seen this for so long. We really haven't. I think uh, the Rugby World Cup was perhaps the last time we saw a good old-fashioned toe-to-toe slugfest between these two. And uh, even then, you know, there was a very flattering scoreline for the box being 2018. They lost, but they never looked like they were ever going to score a try. Whereas in this match... They looked enterprising. They looked really excitable. They looked like a team that had something to offer. Not just a team that was trying, because let's be honest, the box can always try. Blood, sweat, tears, and doing it for your country, all that kind of crap. That's what they specialize in. But here was a team that had a lot of belief. And I just, I can't help. And I, I read about this on, on my blog, The Bounce of Today. I read about this saying that if we ever were to see a turnaround for this team, if this team does go on and actually reach its potential, we can look at those weird eight or nine minutes after the Hooter in the first half at Newlands where Ibn Etzebeth decided that the team is not going to go have a sit down. They're going to keep playing. They were 3-8 down on the scoreboard, but they really wanted to score before they went to that second half. And um, it wasn't a lack of trying. I just could say just need to kick the ball 20 meters and it would have gone out and they would have had a half time. And it just showed that this team is actually really, it's, it's frustrated. It's, it's fed up of being second best to everybody. It's fed up of, of its fans being fed up with it. And you can just see, like, that's real leadership. People say Ibn Etzebeth shouldn't be the captain. Obviously, Warren White is going to come back, and you would imagine he would be the captain. Others are suggesting, well, this is the time that Sir Khaleesi should be the captain. Look, these are all good ideas. They all have their merits. But I think a lot of credit's got to go to Ibn, who has had to alter his own game. You know, we keep forgetting this guy is still, he's in his mid-20s. He's super young still. And he's had to alter his game this season. He's got to take a lot more responsibility. And, uh, you know, we still need him to be this amazing player. So I think credit to him and credit to the box for what they fought out in that eight minutes. Because I don't know if you notice, you watch that game, watch the highlights. Prior to that, it was just another ponderous Bok performance where it was going to be body on the line. We'll try to get penalties and just try not to slip tackles. That's going to be our plan. And maybe, just maybe, we can be there at the end. The moment that that first half went into that strange overtime situation, suddenly these guys were playing with a lot more purpose. And we haven't seen that in quite some time. I know those games against Argentina and France, they were, they were satisfactory wins. 
but there wasn't like the same kind of purpose. And there was a real presence. You could even tell by the way the crowd was reacting. This was good old fashioned Bok rugby. Now, I don't mean it like in the good old days back when the guys used to run into each other and, you know, we had players that did that. It's good old fashioned Bok rugby in that we had a sense this team was going to win the match. And that I think we need to look at. So again, you can, depending on what, what, what kind of a fan you are, depending on what, how you like to get indulge your sport, we need to look at it as far as this team has shown that they can be a great rugby team again. And I'm not just saying they could beat Australia or they might sneak a win against England here or there. I'm talking about great as in they can actually really trouble the All Blacks. Now the All Blacks will, it was kind of strange where as you look at this match from a statistical purpose because the All Blacks weren't the All Blacks we are accustomed to seeing. I mean, for instance, they made more tackles than the box did. When have you ever seen that in a match? Absolutely ridiculous. They made 197 tackles, did the All Blacks. Sorry, they made 168. They attempted 197. So those are the numbers there. The box, in comparison, well, they attempted 118, and they made 89. So that's kind of telling. And I don't know if that's because the All Blacks were kind of swamped by the amazing forward effort from the Springboks because they were so bloody dominant. I mean, you run through that forward pack, one to eight, with a few exceptions of maybe Ruan Dredd didn't have his best match and he was pinged at scrum time, maybe wasn't as effectual. Uh, Francois Lowe wasn't as obviously dominant, so obviously he was playing eighth man. But they all played their part and they were all over them. I mean, obviously Malcolm Marks, he was the headline. Ibn Etzebeth played a match of his life. Stephen Kitsoff coming off... Um, Finally getting a start. He was immense. There were just immense performances that we might not see anytime soon. There really was that, you know, it's frustrating the box have to be at rock bottom to produce this, but that's the thing. They produced it. And I think doing so, they, they sucked the All Blacks into a game where they, they didn't know what they were had to do. They had to just physically give it back. And I think when an All Black team has to physically give it back, they're not the best team in the world anymore. They're just a very good team. When they play things on their own terms and they can dictate, which they do 95% of the time, no one can stand a chance of beating these guys. And that's what the box always did previously when they were a lot more competitive. They managed to get the All Blacks to have to play a more physical match. And when you have to play a physical match, well, the box are pretty good at that. They really are. But the lineouts were better. The scrums were good. Like It was just... It was so great to see a forward pack that were that good. And the All Blacks, well, you know, they didn't know where to score their tries like they normally do. Obviously, there was the moment with Crotty. We scored with his crotch. Uh, World Rugby was saying there definitely was a try. Again, you know, any other day, any other refing panel, it maybe would have been a knock-on. Who knows? These are the small things that decide these big matches. David McKenzie, he, obviously, this is what the All Blacks do so well. They get dynamic talent, and they put them in positions, and they show faith in them. And the guy, David McKenzie, of which you'll constantly hear from commentators, only weighs 81 kilograms. The guy uses his pace all over the place. Steve Hansen had a great analogy for him. He's like a fly in a bottle. He's just all over the place. You know, it was these little things that were the difference. So... If you look at it on the stats, very frustrating for, for SA. I mean, they even beat the All Blacks in offloads, 11 to 8. Defenders beaten. Okay, they shared that one, 29 each. But possession, the box has 63% of possession and 62% of territory, which also goes back to something that me and a few like-minded people have been saying for quite some time. The All Blacks stole the way they play rugby from the, the box. Remember when the box was so good in 2009? They didn't need the ball. They kicked well, they used the opportunities, and they had a great forward pack. This All Black team as well. They kick well, they don't always need the ball. They had 36% of the ball on the weekend, 36 And they still managed to always use the opportunities, and they get the win. That's what these guys do. So it was frustrating, yes. Progress, definitely for the Springboks. And it's something to be happy about. And I've just noticed from talking to people, I have not seen people this excited about Springbok rugby for quite some time. Not after we beat the French earlier in this year in that series. People were like, well, this is a really good start. This is progress. Not after they beat the Archies home and away. This is a different kind of happy. This was a, this is a happy, and it's still, bear in mind, still hasn't been a, they haven't won in a month, the box. Okay, they had those two draws versus the Aussies. And technically speaking, they only lost twice in the whole rugby championships. But there is happiness and there is excitement and there is hope. Um, maybe the bar is lowered and we, our expectations are becoming a slightly more realistic. Whatever it is, it's a positive thing. And now the box go into the overseas tour where they'll start against Ireland, I think it is. And it's a really good place to be. But to be realistic, there are some things that need to be spoken about which need to either be changed, worked on, or at the very least by Alistair Garcia and his team acknowledged. There is no way that the box can play that kind of game 
Sorry. There is no way the box can play that kind of game and sustain it. I mean, Peter Toy, if you look at what he gave into that match, you look at, like I mentioned, Ibn Elizabeth, Malcolm Marks, all those players. These guys gave everything to that match. They really did. They're probably still in ice baths now. So you can't sustain it. There's got to be other ways than just dominating the forward pack. And this backline really has to step up now. There's no ways that on such a platform you should have a halfback pairing that is still as ineffectual as Ross Crenier and Elton Janchis. So you don't want to obviously make them the scapegoats. I don't believe any one player lost the match for them. It definitely wasn't Damien D'Anale. He did not lose the match for them. Um, if, you look, if you watch my YouTube channel, I've made a video about that, but that's for a different story. Um, it, as a unit, this backline needs to step up. They need to offer a hell of a lot more because the forward pack's cool. That's great. People are going to be shitting themselves playing against that box forward pack, but they just know that backline's going to drift, that there's no pivot that's going to really take things to the line. Andre Pollard, and I know I, I, I sing his praises because I believe he's a great player. I think he's been managed quite poorly in the last two years, but he's a solid, solid player. When that guy was taking the ball to the line, Suddenly, did you realize how New Zealand weren't regrouping like they normally do in defense? Suddenly, there was a bit more frantic arm gestures going around, and suddenly there were gaps for the box. That's how uh, Jolette Dupriere scored a really great try, where Pollard connected with Malcolm Marks. That guy, he's got something. And if we ever wonder why that guy, even though he's on one leg and he hasn't played any rugby the last year or so, any wonder why the box coaches still have him in the squad? Well, I think he kind of showed it on Saturday. He's a man for an occasion. He's still so young, of course, but he has looked dynamite in that position before. I know the World Cup that he had, which is the last time we saw him have an extended run, it wasn't his best showing. It, he was he was above average, but it wasn't like amazing. Then again, World Cups are very different things. But there were moments under Heineke Mayer where Andre Polo was just fantastic. And there was moments against an all-black team at Ellis Park. If you go back and watch those those highlights, I think it was um, I think uh, three years ago. Uh, could be actually four years ago. That guy was just, he was sensational. And he has the ability to get that backline going forward. And he has the ability to give them some real impetus. So I think, uh, unfortunate with injuries, I know he went off again, uh, concussion-related injury this time around. But this guy needs a chance. And if not him, well, when is Cohen Bosch going to be old enough for his chance? you got to think. This team, it, it's not about ticking boxes. never about being ticking boxes when it comes to the box. It's about being fantastic. And that means, relatively, Speaking, every single time, well, not really, realistically speaking, every time they take on the All Blacks, it means that they can beat the All Blacks. This is what the mindset's got to be. We, as a Springbok team, are not going to beat the All Blacks with Ross Crenier at 9 and Alton Junchies at 10. And once you've got that back line on a back foot like that, Jan Serfentain can play the game of his life like he did on Saturday, and he'll only ever be a crash ball specialist. Jesse Creel gets a lot of flack about being an ineffectual 13 and a waste of space. Not my words, of course. I just think at a better backline, we'll see a better player. It's as simple as that. It's difficult to be a shining star when you are not delivered a platform where you can perform on. That back three as well, obviously, same example with Creel. It's nice to have front football and a bit of space to show you your abilities. But again, it's just not quite good enough. It's just not going to cut it. It's not going to break a game together. And it sure as hell, it's not going to keep a tight one together either. So break a game apart. So, Andrews Kassir has been given many, many chances. Um, I mean, has he, has he really shown anything to us that he's going to kick on at this level? Is he going to become better? Is he going to be a guy who will develop in the role? I mean, how many more tests do you essentially give someone? Um, yeah, Raymond Rule's been thrown away. Uh, Courtney Oskosan has been persisted with. But again, is he going to be... We all know he's prolific at super rugby level. But is this guy going to kick on? I think we've seen enough in his rugby championships to be able to make some big calls this end of year tour. Now, I don't think Alistair Kutsir is a big call kind of guy. He loves continuity. I often believe continuity is just a nice word for lazy. It's great to keep the status quo because it means you're not going to hurt anyone's feelings. You're not going to have to try very hard. And you're not going to have to think differently. This team needs to think differently. We all know the talent in there. And again, once we've got a forward platform like we had on Saturday, we should be beating every single team in the world. But you need backs to be able to capitalize on that. You need backs that are going to dominate territory and know where the ball is going. So that back line, there needs to be some shakeups. We need to be bringing players in who are dynamic, who can do something. Because once the hard work is done up front, we've got the ability to throw, as they say, X-factor players out there. So we can't keep having the tried and tested, saying, well, that guy's okay. Okay doesn't cut it. And this end of your tour, 
it's always a, tr- a tricky one because you want to say, like, uh, when do we get to try new box out? When do we get to try the youngsters? Northern Hemisphere conditions aren't really conducive for this. The weather's pretty crap. The competition is very, very fierce. I mean, these guys play a hard game of rugby. And remember, where they are in their season, they're a lot fresher than uh, what the box are. So, look, back in the day, these games were a little bit easier, I guess. But now, you know, you're playing Ireland. That game is going to be as tough as you like. It will be one of your toughest games of the year. And the same can be said for those other teams. Scotland's really come up. Wales are no pushover. England are incredible. Uh, obviously, when you play Italy, they're kind of shite. Although we can't say that as Bok fans because they beat us last time. Uh, France are France. So whenever you go to Northern Hemisphere, you're still going to get amazingly tough games. So where you blood the youngsters, well, it remains to be seen. But I think some big calls are going to be made because this is a big team. We must never forget that Springboks are a big rugby team. And um, big decisions, big balls, all these big things need to happen. And then we'll be able to see more games like we saw at Newlands. Only difference being it won't be a one-point loss. There'll be some wins here finally for the box. It's it's a nice position to speak on because I think we've got a lot to be positive about. And uh, what happens with the selection of end of year tour? What happens if the box are even going to play in the rest of this Curry Cup? Exciting times going ahead for rugby, and I think we can just take that. And I think that's where we're going to end off this week, because any other sports story that I had to report on from early week, well, there's the Ballon d'Or, there's too many players in that, we all know that, uh, that we've we've covered the cricket, not overly positive right now. And, um, well, Bafana Bafana, good on those guys, beating Bikini Faso 3-1, but still, it's not really in their hands, they can win every game from here, but they really need some results to go their way. But anyway, let's not doom and gloom around that. We've still got lots to be positive about sports, and um, I will try to bring it to you. I, of course, uh, I'm sorry if this sounds a bit tinny, but I've had to pre-record. Um, I've got a very, very busy week this week, so I've had to pre-record this if you are listening live and uh, you worry about the sound quality. But, uh, I mean, in some city playing golf, uh, I'm trying to get my body right. Because, you know, I had that concussion, right? And uh, I've my, my whole under 12-second 100-meter challenge, that's just really fallen by the wayside. Anyway, more videos coming on The Bounce. If you follow The Bounce on YouTube, that's the account, follow The Bounce, and you'll see videos of my progress. I am trying to get my body right. I still want to win that challenge. I still want to uh, reach my goal of running 12, uh, sorry, 100 meters less than 12 seconds. The biokineticist is the next port of call. So you'll see a video around that. And then towards the end of the month, something quite exciting. I'm going to Rwanda, and it is a cricketing mission. But I'll tell you all about that next week in more more depth. Uh, yeah, flying out to Kigali on the, I think, 24th of October. Hugely excited about that. It's going to involve uh, Brian Lara, Michael Vaughan, and a whole bunch of other very, very interesting people. And uh, I'll get to fly my drone in, in Rwanda. How exciting is that? That's it for The Bounce this week. Follow me on Twitter at FollowTheBounce. Otherwise, uh, Instagram, The Bounce. There's a lot of stuff on there. Otherwise, you can just engage with me if you have any other longer issues you want to talk about. If there's any more things you want to hear on the show, ben at thebounce.co.za on the email. That wraps up for this week. Thanks for joining me. Back to the studio next week. Ciao. This is cliffcentral.com.